Thanks for listening to the Campus Collective Podcast. As always, we pray that this resource is a helpful supplement for you as a follower of Jesus and as an active member in your local church. We love God's design for His church, and we believe that this resource could never substitute the incredible things that come from active involvement with a community of believers. Campus Collective is a ministry of Huntington Community Church. To learn more, visit our website at HuntingtonCommunityChurch.com. My name is Dustin. I am one of the pastors of Huntington Community Church, and one of my responsibilities is to get to um, walk with um, you guys in this ministry uh, at Campus Collective. And I love that we are back. I am excited um, for another semester of season six of Campus Collective, but I want to say something in the beginning. It's okay if you're not excited. I think sometimes um, we get tricked into thinking that our faith, you're a Christian in here, that it is one of working ourselves up into chipper feelings that shows that we must really love God. And while it's true that Christians have a joy that can't be touched by the circumstances of life, our faith is emotionally complex. And there's seasons of sorrow, there's seasons of drought, there's seasons of just spiritual dryness. And even in that there can still be joy. But it's okay if you're not bursting with excitement for another semester of ministry. And I think especially in the spring semester, this is difficult. Um, It's dark. It's going to be cold. I guess it's kind of cold today, but it's going to get cold, especially towards the end of this month and in February. And it feels like... I should really stop using this hand. This is distracting me. Okay. Everybody go with... This is like too bad. Everybody fine? Okay. A few of you did not shake your head, but that's okay got enough affirmation. Um, It can feel like, I think especially in the spring semester, when we're not like launching a new year, that momentum can and will slow down. That we just kind of need to survive until, you know, the birds chirp again or the flowers bloom. And on top of all that, you maybe are already feeling the weight of feeling bad about your lack of resolve in your New Year's resolutions, right? You think, 2023, it's a new year, I'm going to make this, this, and this commitment, I'm going to do this with my health, I'm going to do this with my spiritual life, whatever it may be, and it's easy to see that just willpower and just your own self-discipline can never last. Um, My personal resolution this year is just to learn how to juggle four balls at the same time, so I haven't done that yet, but that's, I try to keep them light, so I'm not disappointed. But either way, whether you do that or you have heavier things that you're trying to change in your life, As magical as the turn of the calendar can feel, what you know already is that it never satisfies because you were made for much more than self-improvement and finding your own purpose. Now, don't let that get cliche. You've been told that before probably, but you need to understand that gnawing feeling of inadequacy, that can't-do-it-on-your-own-ness, God has put that in humans so that you would know you can't do it on your own. And so New Year's resolutions are good and fine as long as they go, but if you understand that you are not enough on your own, that I believe that's a mercy from the Lord. Because we all crave glory. We all crave majesty, and if we're honest, we look for it in all the wrong places. If you're honest with yourself, even this, maybe even for Christmas break, how many ruining, life-ruining mistakes are we capable of making as we just search and look for a a feeling? Feels good, looks good, feels right, that's what I want. And we realize the accompanied 
feelings of that are actually just shame and guilt. And that's because what the Bible calls going away from God's intention, away from God's commands, is sin. And when we choose to disobey God's commands, we are choosing curse, not blessing. And so in the midst of all that, your own personal inability to make yourself right, the broken nature of our world, the lack of changing staying power that a New Year's resolution can have, in the midst of all that, we need something constant. You crave that. And thankfully for us, as Bible-believing people, the Word is our constant. You have an unchanging, timeless Word in our Bibles. Not only that, the people of God are a constant. The church is a constant. And for some of you who have been walking with us for a semester, that's probably a next step for you, is saying, you know what? I'm all in with the local church so I can be discipled, be corrected, be helped, be walked with, and in turn serve and be on mission with a local church family in this city that you're calling home for the next three to four years. I want you to understand something. You need to, from the right and the get-go, I know some of you are new faces tonight. I haven't maybe only got to meet you as you were coming in. You need to understand, Tuesday nights, Campus Collective, we are not interested in just building a big campus ministry hoopla. All right? Not interested in that. Quite frankly, not gifted enough for that. What we are interested in, though, especially on these Tuesday nights, is to let this be a place where we worship Jesus, we are spurred on into discipleship, connected to our church, and loving and serving the people that God has brought to our campus. We take the campus personally. We'll say, you'll hear that a lot. We'll say our campus, not because we think we own it. I guess the state of West Virginia technically owns it. But we take it personally that God has entrusted these people into this city around us in our classes so that they might hear the good news of what Christ has done through our lips. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to do the seemingly ordinary things. Go to church, hear the word, get in the word, pray, love, serve, be held accountable, get in our D groups. All of these seemingly ordinary things, trusting that because God is in it, he could do something huge in our lives. But the point of these meetings is not to give you a motivational speech where you just want to go wear a Campus Collective t-shirt around. We've been given another evening to exalt Jesus in his word and sing and love each other. And so, that being said, let's look at Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to do the whole chapter tonight. This is kind of the pivot point in the book. We've still got 14 weeks before we finish the book of Hebrews. But what I want to do first is to read this and put it out before you, okay? I'm going to read it so we can all see this together. If you don't have a Bible, it should be on the screen behind me, um, or you can share with someone. Maybe someone brought one beside you. If you don't have a Bible and want one, let me know. We'd love to buy you one or give you one so you can have God's word for yourself. So let's read Hebrews 8, 1 through 13. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he, meaning Jesus, were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer, sacrifice, or offer gifts according to the law. They serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, 
See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would use this chapter to give us a sight, the eyes of our heart, a sight of the glory of Jesus and the covenant that he purchased for us with his death. And so, God, we need help. Um, we are sinners, we are broken, we are needy, and we need you to stoop low in your grace. Open your word to us. And so, God, we're trusting you to do it. Help us to be found faithful, whether me as preaching or them as listening, I just pray that ultimately we would just be enamored by Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, guys, so the title of the sermon, if you need that in your notebook, is We Have Such a High Priest. We have such a high priest. The big idea is this. If you are in Christ, meaning you by faith have trusted Christ for salvation, repented of your sin, and follow after him, you have that high priest. And the book of Hebrews has been trying to show us, if you were here with us last semester, the glory of Jesus in the glory of how the priesthood of the old covenant foreshadowed his cross and resurrection work. And so this chapter feels like a turning point where the author of Hebrews starts to really unload on us all of the good that that means for us when we have this type of high priest. And so we just read all of it, and now we get to walk through it, hit the gospel points and implications, and then consider how this text is calling us to live as a community and as individuals who um, are responsible to, and if you're a Christian, saved by Christ. And so I want to make one point here before we do this walkthrough. Um, this is a, another section of Hebrews that is assuming that the readers of it know a lot about the Old Covenant and the Old Testament. And so some of you might be new to your Bibles. Maybe you've had a Bible for a while but never really read that first, I guess it's maybe around two-thirds, not sure exactly, that first big chunk. You need to understand that a lot of this language here is assuming, just like the original hearers of this, text, of this letter would have had, that you know a lot about that. And so this is going to take a lot of heavy lifting in our thinking, and I needed some commentary help just to continue to solidify my thinking about the Old Covenant. And so I want to just make a disclaimer. When, when you hear me rattling off different things here, I'm not just remembering it all perfectly. Um, I needed help from outside sources to continue to learn um, the Old Covenant in our Bibles. And so even as we kind of think through some of those concepts, one, something I want to make sure we understand 
is that what is important is that we are cherishing the realities here, even as we think through difficult concepts. And so we're going to make sense of this using what we know from Hebrews already and assuming a lot of Old Testament background that even you might need to go back and refresh yourself on with some outside sources. So let's look at verse 1 and 2 again together. Now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who was seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Don't you love when the Bible just makes it clear for us? I love that the author of Hebrews just says, now the point in what we are saying is this, which means not only do we get a clear statement of what the whole section of the high priestness of Jesus was about in Hebrews, we get a lens to view all of those realities. And so here's what he's saying. The point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest. Now, there's two angles that we need to look at that phrase. The point in what we are saying is this. The first one is to make sure that we remember what we are saying. You see that? The point of what we are saying is this, but if you don't remember all that's been said, or you weren't here, or you've never read Hebrews, that's going to be difficult, right? What's the point of what we are saying? We have such a high priest. That means nothing if you don't understand all of the context that's come before it. And so we are going to do a kind of a quick flyby of the first seven chapters with a particular focus on Jesus as the high priest. Then, once we've done that, we'll let the context launch us into the main point that we have this high priest. Does that make sense? We don't, this doesn't matter to us unless we understand the weight of what is being said here. So, this is the Jesus that we get to know. What kind of high priest is he? In Hebrews 1, we learn that Jesus is the creator of the world, that he is the final revelation of God because he is God in the flesh. We see that he deserves all of our worship. We see that he defeated every enemy and evil and puts them under his feet. In Hebrews 2, we see that Jesus is mindful of mankind, that Jesus tasted death for all of us in his suffering. We also see that Jesus is not ashamed of us. We see in Hebrews 2 that Jesus destroyed the power of death for us. And then we get our first high priest truth. It says this in Hebrews 2. Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest in his propitiation for our sins. Jesus helps us when we are tempted because he was tempted in the same way as we are. Then in Hebrews 3, we learn that Jesus was a faithful high priest as he built God's house just like Moses. Jesus was faithful over God's house like a son, and because of that, we can hold our confidence. In Hebrews 4 and 3, 3 and 4, we learn that Jesus gives us true rest, that we all must give an account to Jesus. And then you remember this in Hebrews 4? Jesus is a great high priest who passed through the heavens and is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And because of that, we can draw near to him with confidence. Hebrews 5, Jesus is a priest, a high priest who deals gently with the ignorant and wayward and weak. And we see that Jesus is the source of our eternal salvation. In Hebrews 6, remember Caleb's sermon? All the promises of God find their yes in him, and he makes sure promises. And then in Hebrews 7, we see that Jesus was and is the true and better Melchizedek, who is the true and better king of righteousness and peace, who can save us to the uttermost by making intercession for us. That Jesus is holy, innocent, unstained, separated, and exalted, and Jesus made one sacrifice to secure our salvation 
forever. Man, that's Hebrews 1 through 7. Now, they're all on the podcast. You want to go back and listen to those full things explained? But we have to see that if we can understand the point of what is being said. And four major themes come out when we consider Jesus as our high priest. We learn in Hebrews that he is faithful, that he is merciful, that he is great, and that he is eternal. Now, this is true about Jesus. This is who he is regardless of who you are. But who he is is what matters right now because who he is gives our purpose, our being as human beings. And what we learn because of the gospel, listen to me, Jesus is a faithful, merciful, great, eternal high priest, but because of his death and resurrection, he is those things for you. My goodness, it is so easy to let these things, okay, yes, old covenant high priest, Jesus is great, eternal, merciful, and faithful, but you need to understand. You want to see your life in Christ change and have that, those longings fulfilled that you're longing and begging for? You have to see because of his death and resurrection, these are for you. Those glorious realities are aimed at you. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. So I want you to stop and just feel the weight of that. You have him. (laughs) He has given himself to you. In Galatians 2.20, Paul makes a statement about our identity in Christ, and then he says, in the life I live in the flesh... I will live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself to me. Man, do you understand that? Jesus is not only the high and lifted up God that deserves all of our praise and worship. He is that, and he has given himself to us. Not earned, given. Not just what you wanted, but what you needed, and maybe what you didn't even know that you needed. And so I've got to pause. For those of you not in Christ tonight, you haven't repented, you haven't believed, do you even know that you need him? Do you understand, Christians in the room, there are people in your class you met today that need this high priest. We need a high priest to represent us before God. Otherwise, we are doomed in our sin, away from the rest that God provides. And by faith, If you have faith in Christ, you've been put under the sacrifice of our great high priest. You have him. This is the greatest news in the world. This is why we sing. This is why we go to church. This is why we put ourselves in awkward situations to tell the truth to people. It's why we do D groups, why we sacrifice our time, energy, money to see his kingdom going because of this news. I've heard it said before, I love this, that Christian ministry is actually kind of a terrible hobby. (laughs) Like, if this isn't true, like, why would you do this? You take an evening, you come here, you look at me, sing some songs, spend your time and energy loving people that may or may not love you back, and there's a promise that you're in a broken world, and you're a broken person, and it's going to be really, really hard. You guys are like, yeah, that sounds like better than disc golf, or whatever hobby. It's funny, but it's true. If you're a Christian, you've signed up for this, and it's because you believe this news is actually worth that. That God created you. That he made men and women in his image to, be, to worship him in loving obedience. 
And by our nature and by our choice, we rebelled. We chose life apart from God. In other words, we chose death. Because of that, we deserve death and separation. But instead of that, we got Christ. He lived, he died, he rose again. This is the work that he accomplished. And these high priest thoughts give us insight into just how beautiful his life, death, and resurrection really are. And we respond in repentance and faith. That might be a new word if you're new to the Bible. Repentance is simply turning. It's a turning in our heart of cherishing ourself and sin and cherishing Christ. It's a turning of our mind. We agree that what we formerly loved and thought was good and right, we no longer believe that. We believe what God says is good and right. And we hate sin. And we turn in our wills. We choose to follow a new path with our hearts and minds and our lives. And we talk about faith in these sermons, in our D groups, in our life of this ministry. We're not talking about just intellectual assent. We're not saying that God exists. We are saying we are receiving him as Lord and Savior and treasure. Repent and believe. That is the call. For those of you who don't know Christ, that's the call right now. For those of you that already do know Christ, that is still our call. Not for salvation again, but to re-enter and re-enjoy the joy of your salvation. The call is repent and believe. Not just to believe and accept, but to live and rejoice and obey now. And listen, I'm not trying to just sell you on a happily ever after. I'm telling you the truth. This truth can actually set you free from the tyranny of your sin causing shame and guilt in your life, from the tyranny of just being bored out of your mind with no purpose and no direction. The Bible makes it clear that we seek everything else besides God. But in that longing where you're seeking for all these other things, what you really want, you can't want that in your sin, obviously, but what can only actually satisfy those broken desires? Christ. And this is what Hebrews is going to do for us. So, once again, let's look at the next part of this. The point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. Now, let's see what else we can see. Who is this high priest that we have? Continuing in the verse. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So he's seated at the right hand of the throne. He is seated because the work needed to save us has been finished. He isn't like those other high priests that had to keep standing up and keep making sacrifices. He made it and he sat down. And he's interceding for us or mediating between us and God. 1 Timothy 2.5 says there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, fully man, fully God, Jesus Christ. 1 John 2.1, I love this verse talking about his intercession. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Listen, in the gospel, you have power to not sin and pardon if you do. My goodness, this is amazing. Christ is in you and you are in Christ. His spirit lives in you, Christian. You are able to say no to the things that you were formerly enslaved to. You can and when you mess up, pardon, purchased forever because of him. Another glorious intercession verse, 1 John 1, 9, that same book, says if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
It's a faithful high priest. He'll do it every time. Jesus Christ, our high priest, is also our reigning and our interceding king. He's the true tent minister in the holy place set up by God, the ultimate and final offering. Not like the old covenant priest in tabernacle, he is the one in the true tent that they were all pointing to. Verse 3, let's keep going. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. So, Quickly, every high priest was appointed, that was their job in the Old Covenant, to offer gifts and sacrifices. Offer gifts of thanksgiving and worship to God, and sacrifices for the sins of the people. Which, hopefully, we've got our biblical theology glasses on here, and we understand all of those sacrifices designed to point to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. And so, the logic holds. Because the high priest in the tent made by hands to offer gifts and sacrifices, because they did that, Our high priest, the one that we have, also should have something to offer. And instead of a bloody bull or a bloody goat, he bleeds for us. His life was the ultimate act of worship to his father. The point of verse 3 is to show us that the reality of the old covenant man-made tent high priest offering gifts and sacrifices was meant to point to the ultimate gift and sacrifice that is done in the true tent. Verse 4, now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. This is interesting, but if Jesus were on earth um, during that time, he wouldn't be a priest under the old covenant system. He wasn't in the Levitical line or in the line of Aaron. And so what's the point of that? Why would they say that? The point of this verse is to show that Jesus' priesthood was something else entirely. The priesthood written about in the old covenant was simply pointing to the heavenly reality of something much better. And then in verse 5, states it plainly for us. Look at verse 5. What's the point? If he was on earth and he wouldn't have been this, then why do we keep reading about it? Here's why. They serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. So what's the point of those? They serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. So when you read your Old Testament and see how God organized his people and the worship of him, you are seeing copies and shadows of the heavenly reality that Christ brings in full and will bring to complete finality when he returns. Listen, this is one reason that the Old Testament is so important for us, even though we aren't under the Old Covenant law here in Christ. It gives shape and beauty to the New Testament realities. We need the book of Hebrews because it shows us the proper way to read our Old Testament. Do you understand this? The Old Testament is Christian scripture. It's not Jewish scripture that the Jesus people hijacked and reinterpreted. All of it meant to point to Jesus Christ. Shadows, types, pointing ahead to Christ and his kingdom. And in this section of Hebrews, we need to see that the particular beauty of the high priest and tabernacle as a type and shadow points us to the heavenly reality of our high priest that is ours. And then, in verse 5, the author actually quotes Exodus in the Old Testament right there. Do you see that? For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So commentators say, on this, that the word pattern there shows that Moses was shown something of the heavenly reality and then told to make the earthly tent according to that pattern. 
So even back then, Moses is shown glory, heavenly glory. He says, make it according to this pattern so that my people see a picture of what's coming. Verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. Our high priest has a better ministry than the old covenant. One author says that we aren't trying to say here that the old covenant is bad and the new covenant is good. We're saying the old covenant is good and the new covenant is better. The better promises of the new covenant are glorious, and we're going to get to those. But let's see one thing really quick in verse 7 that rounds out kind of the contrast that the author's trying to set up. Look at verse 7. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So one author makes it clear, taught me, that the fault of the old covenant was that the people of God didn't keep it. It was only there to show them that they needed him. And because of this, the old covenant, the law, was designed to keep people longing for Jesus and his priesthood and his covenant. Um, Galatians 3.24 says it this way, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. The book of Galatians also teaches us that the law, this old covenant, imprisoned people in their sin so that they wouldn't be tricked into thinking they could save themselves by their obedience. Now, I've heard it compared before, the law compared to an x-ray. X-ray can only show what is broken. It can't fix the brokenness. And so when you see the moral demands of God, you shouldn't see that and think, I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps, I'm going to obey, obey all this, and then God will pick me. You should see that and think, I am a sinner. I am no way can I get to this God. And it's in that desperate awareness of your sin, you're able to see the beauty of the gospel. So in verses 8 through 12, we see the better promises that the new covenant was founded on. Read them with me. Look at verse 8. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Look at these promises. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I'll be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So right in the beginning of verse 8, he says, For he finds fault with them when he says. And then in this, in this uh, chapter in Hebrews, what is actually being quoted is the prophet Jeremiah. So if you're taking notes, write these references down. Jeremiah 31 Chapter 31, 31 through 34. This is a text you need to have when you're thinking through the difference between Old Covenant and New Covenant because in that chapter is Jeremiah literally prophesying and promising the New Covenant that Jesus is going to enact. And so in the context when Jeremiah wrote that, the Old Covenant people of God were on their way to facing exile and the just punishment for their sins because they broke the covenant with God. They had chosen other gods. And in the midst of Jeremiah's grueling ministry, just so you know, it's a crazy case study when you see his ministry. He was literally just constantly rejected and just wept about it. 
The nickname he gets is the weeping prophet. He's just constantly telling people, you're breaking God's law. You're choosing exile. You're choosing punishment. They don't listen. He's a weeping prophet. Which I think is important we do a quick note on ministry faithfulness here. We stay faithful to the Lord even when we don't get the results that we want. We can go ahead and stop the wish that joining a ministry is a good way to get popular. Only the eyes of faith can see the faith of the weeping prophet and want in on that. It's not that we want to be weeping prophets, but we understand that faithfulness is what matters before results. And Luke 13 describes a scene where Jesus sees the crowd of Jerusalem and he's longing that they would come to him. And so I just want to stop and pause. And whenever you're thinking about the crowds at your campus or the crowd in your class or even the crowd here tonight, where's your heart go? Do you think ignore, stay away? Or do you weep knowing there are people in your class that have rejected, just like the old covenant people of God, rejected the God that made them in their sin? Listen, you can't look at people in your class and think these are people that I can add to my ministry portfolio. You want to be used and effective? You want to be a ministry that can be used by God to advance His kingdom in our city and our campus? Are we people who are going to pray? And in that praying, are we people who hearts break for the lostness around us? And so it's in that desperation that Jeremiah unloads these promises, which, by the way, are true for us in Christ. So he says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, anticipating these days of Christ, when I will establish a new covenant in the, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So a new covenant is coming for the people of God. Not like the old covenant. This one's going to be different. Not like the one where he rescued them from Egypt and gave them the law, and they committed to keeping it, but they couldn't do it. In what way will this be different? Keep reading. For they did not continue my covenant, and I showed no concern for them, declared the Lord. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. No longer will God's law be something on the outside of his people that only shows them how far gone they are without him. God's very moral character will be something that we can actually internalize and love and cherish. We can be holy. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They'll be possessed by him. And they shall not teach each one to his neighbor and each one to his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. They will all actually know him intimately. And then he says, For I'll be merciful toward their iniquities, and I'll remember their sins no more. True mercy, true forgiveness, a relationship where their sins aren't remembered. Now, another verse I want you to jot down, I'm not going to read, is Ezekiel 36, 24 through 28. This is another uh, new, co um, new covenant promise that we see from another prophet in Ezekiel. But you take uh, Jeremiah's prophecy, you take Ezekiel's prophecy, and what you get is God promising that he's not going to give up on his people, that his people will be together. They will be made clean. They will have new hearts and a new spirit. Hearts won't be made of stone anymore. The Holy Spirit will enter in and cause his people to walk in his rules, and they will be possessed by him. Then verse 13, and speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish 
away. So, let's consider this together. One reason we need to see these better promises in front of us is that we need to see that this is what you actually long for. Obviously, we aren't in the old covenant system where we're atoning for our sins by animals and sacrifice, but every person is guilty. Every person here, guilty before a holy God apart from his grace. And even if you're already in Christ, your flesh can be deceived into thinking that it's works-based righteousness that keeps you in God's favor. And it drains your spiritual power right out. You can let guilt and shame drain you. You can let the suffering you have endured erode your confidence that God is still for you in Christ. Listen, you need better promises than whatever you have believed that leads you away from the true gospel power in Christ. And so, either for the first time or the 100th time, I want all of us to hear these gospel promises, and I want all of us to respond in repentance and belief in what God has done for us in Christ. There's a scene at the end of the the Gospel of Luke where Jesus has his disciples together before he's about to go to the cross and die for us. In verse 20, it says, And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this is what he says about the first communion service, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And then he goes to the cross as the ultimate sacrifice to purchase the new covenant for all who will have faith in him. And he resurrects and goes back to his father. And now listen, all of the promises of the new covenant are enacted by Christ for us. So I want you to see and feel this. You deserve on your own to have your blood spilled in death and be in exile away from God forever but instead we get Christ. So here's some gospel promises for you. Then we'll sing. We'll be done for tonight. The law of God, if you're in Christ, the law of God is on your heart and mind. You are able to say no to sin. You are able to enjoy the power and beauty of holiness. You are able to know right from wrong. You are able to be convicted of sin for dishonoring your Savior. You are able to internalize the moral character of God and enjoy minds and hearts that are free from the guilt and shame of your sin. That's one gospel promise. Another one that is true for you. You are possessed by God and you have God in Christ. You don't have to spend one more second searching for belonging or purpose or stability or acceptance. These longings are evidence that God put eternity in your heart. You have that in your heart because you were made for God. And in your sin, we've already gone over this, you didn't seek God, but he sought you. And you can have and be had by God now that the new covenant is available by faith. You can know and be known by God intimately. You can actually be known in all your brokenness, in all your mistakes, in all your regrets, in all of your things you won't tell anybody. God knows it, and he loves you in Christ. You are able to intimately know the most glorious, captivating, beautiful being in the entire universe in Christ. And you only have mercy from God and your sins aren't remembered. You aren't stuck fishing out your old sins from the past or the present to let those be ammo of accusation in your soul. Listen to me. If you're in Christ, you've trusted by faith, repented on the authority of the new covenant, Only mercy remembers your sins no more. You're forgiven. And your great high priest not only bought this for you, he mediates this for you, and he reminds you. And one day, he's coming back to finalize them all perfectly in your life forever. Ben, if you'll make your way back up, 
and give us one more charge based on all of this reality before we sing. In Christ, we are in a new covenant with God. Jesus purchased this for you. He purchased your pardon. He purchased your obedience. He purchased your finishing of the race. And he purchased the promises for hope along the way. Every covenant in the Bible pointing towards this one. And Jesus fulfilled it. And so, this semester, what's it going to look like to live this out? We're going to go and share and live and die for the world that needs to know there's a way out of their sinful exile from God. There's a way to be restored by our great high priest. And we go until we join him in the true tent in our heavenly reality forever. Let's stand and sing.